Gracious God, uh, we do ask that we would be strengthened as Paul prayed in Ephesians with power through your spirit in our inner being and that Christ through your word would dwell in our hearts by faith. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to hear your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. It's good to be back uh, with you. We had a good vacation. Somebody said after reading the email where I recounted that we had, I think, 14 kids on the property we stayed and dozens of animals and such. I said, that doesn't sound like the vacation I'd want to take. But it, it was it was good. It was a change of pace. We were glad to get away. Thanks to Father Richard for filling the pulpit admirably while I was away. I'm going to preach based on uh, John chapter 6, the gospel reading for today. And I wonder, when was the last time you've ever worried about not having enough food? The most recent experience I can think um, somewhat like that was when we were on vacation. We um, went on a hike thinking that it was going to be a moderate hike, maybe just an hour or two, hiking up a a mountain to a lake there. It turned out to be a four-hour hike. And during this hike, it rained, and uh, we reached the lake. It took us about an hour and 45 minutes to reach the lake. And while we were there, uh, rain came in, and the temperature dropped about 15 to 20 degrees like that. And uh, my hands grew numb. And uh, we were trying to fish there, and I started to get nervous thinking about, well, do we have uh, what it takes to to stay up here on the mountain if we needed to for a while? And... um, Between the nine of us that were in this hiking party, we had one box of graham crackers and then a couple of pieces of fruit, and it surely was not enough. And, of course, we were able to make it down the mountain just fine. Uh, But it takes these sorts of extreme conditions for us in America to worry about having enough and about having adequate provisions. In Jesus' day, people experienced that much more frequently. Obviously, they were much more vulnerable and especially the uh, poor Galilean Jews that Jesus ministered to, and we see here in this story. John chapter 6 teaches us that Jesus is our great provider, and that's what I want to look at here. Uh, Based on our gospel reading, I have three headings, uh, the provision of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and then the peace of Jesus Christ. This whole... Chapter John chapter six raises an issue for us and we're going to be in John chapter six for the next couple of weeks. And the question is, what are we really hungry for? And where are we looking to satisfy the hunger? And Jesus is claiming here that he can satisfy our deepest longings and our spiritual hunger. And he's really the only one that can satisfy our spiritual hunger. And he's going to teach and we'll see this next week, this crowd. Yes, I gave you bread to eat but I also have the bread of eternal life. And if you come to me, you will never go hungry again and you will find satisfaction for your soul, not just for your stomach, but more importantly, for your soul. What are you hungry for and where are you looking? Who are you looking to to satisfy the hunger? So let's look at Jesus as the great provider. To know Christ as the great provider starts by realizing we don't have what we need. In ourselves, we don't have the resources. But Jesus does, and Jesus has more than enough. 
And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples here at the beginning of this passage. This is what he's doing with this miracle. Look at verses uh, verses two through five. In John six, we see this large crowd following Jesus. They had seen the signs that he was doing on the sick. He's performing these great miracles. Jesus went up the mountain and um, the other gospels tell us that he went there to take a retreat with his disciples. They were being inundated with needs from the people. And Mark says so much so that they didn't have time to eat themselves. And so Jesus wanted to get away with his disciples on a retreat. But it was the Passover time, verse four, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And that was a time when thousands of Jews from all over would come into Jerusalem, the surrounding areas for the pilgrimage. The Passover was a time where the people of Israel, the Jewish people were looking for a rescuer. They were looking to be delivered again. They looked back on God's rescue when they were under the bondage of the Egyptians and they were looking again to another deliverer that would free them from the Roman Empire. And so there were these expectations happening. And then there's Jesus who's performing these great miracles. And so the crowds began to flock to Jesus. He's trying to get away, but he's not able to. Then lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus turns to Philip. And you can almost think that he probably had a little smile on his face when he said this to Philip. Where are we going to buy bread? So that these people may eat. He he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered 200 denarii, which is um, uh, from what I've read about eight months worth of wages. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little bit. And Philip is admitting here, I think we can be completely sympathetic to Philip. Imagine half of Bush Stadium showing up on your lawn and saying, what's for dinner? 5,000 men were here, probably 15 to 20,000 total people. What's for dinner? Are you going to feed us? And Philip, again, we can sympathize. He's looking at things from a natural point of view. I don't have the resources. We don't have the resources. We're not able to do what you're asking of us, Lord. And that is the starting point for knowing that Jesus is our provider. Our culture tells us you do have enough. Just look within yourself. Look to yourself for the spiritual resources. Look to your own talent. Look to your own ability. Look to your own Chutzpah, your own will. You can pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And Jesus says, don't look within. Look to me. I'm the provider. And just think about it. What do we need? What do we need to live in in this world that's increasingly becoming cynical, doubting, hard, world of violence and cynicism? What do we need in order to live a life of faith, hope and love? It's not in us. It's in Christ. We need to look to Jesus Christ. How can we live a life of integrity? How can we minister and serve hurting and lonely people? People who've been hurt by the church. People who have all sorts of questions. Do we have the resources? How can we be faithful in marriage? How can we be spiritual leaders in our homes? Our children and our grandchildren looking to us for leadership. How can we have peace with God and feel in his presence, that we're free of guilt and shame. Not by looking to ourselves, by acknowledging, I don't have it. 
But he does. And that's exactly what Jesus wants Philip to understand here and all of his disciples. It's impossible, Philip says. But then Andrew speaks up. He says, Andrew says, we don't have enough, but we do have something. We have this little boy here. He's got some bread, five loaves and a couple pieces of fish. It, It isn't enough. But here you go, Jesus, do with it what you can. That's another lesson for us that we take to Jesus. We acknowledge we don't have it, but we take what we do have to him. And we say, Lord, we know it's not enough, but use my life. Use my gifts, use my time, use my talent, use our church. We don't have the resources. We're not able to meet the needs. I'm not able to be the person that you've called me to be in my own strength. But here's what I do have. Here's what I can offer to you. And he will take it if we do this sincerely, giving it to him and he will bless it and he will multiply it and he'll use it beyond what we could even hope or imagine. And that's what the Lord does here. He takes the loaves of bread and the fish. He prays over them. And then the crowd had as much as they wanted. He proved himself to be, in the midst of their need, the great provider. But that's the starting point is to look away from ourselves and to look to him and say, Lord, I need your provision here. And, and, and there are times I know that I've heard the testimonies from people in this congregation where you've seen God's concrete provision, you know, like tangible things have happened in your life. And you have said, this is God. You know, you pray for something and then God answered that prayer in a tangible way. Uh, William Temple, an archbishop, said that um, So some people will dismiss those kind of answered prayers as a matter of uh, coincidence. And he said, well, I've noticed that when I pray, coincidences happen. <laughs> when I stop praying, they don't happen. And God sometimes comes through in, in concrete, tangible ways, according to his will. Not always. We're not talking about Jesus as a magic genie but to build our faith so that we'll go to him, not just for daily bread, but go to him for spiritual bread. There's a story of this book that I've been reading on prayer, which has turned into one of my favorite books on prayer called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And he writes about a time when he was in college and he was trying to support his family. He had a part-time painting business. He had a little baby at home. And he said in 1975, they ran out of money. They ran out of food. And they didn't have work lined up. And they sold books. They sold their jewelry. They even sold their high school rings to make ends meet. But New Year's Day, he says, we sat down at the kitchen table and we prayed. And he said, the moment we stopped praying, the phone rang and it was a customer saying, can you come and paint my house tomorrow? He said, I'll do it if you give me an advance. And he said, that was God's provision. But then as he went home and I read what he says, he says, I was so struck at how God answered prayer for food that I went to bed asking God for something bigger. I asked God to change me. He can answer that kind of practical need. Maybe he can begin to work spiritually in my life. God, would you change me was his prayer. So Jesus is the great provider as we look away from self and look to him. And then that reveals something about his person. This great miracle that Jesus performed reveals who he is. And the reason we trust Jesus ultimately is not just what he can do for us, not primarily what he can do for us, but we trust him because of who he is and who he claims to be. And the miracles authenticate 
Jesus' own teaching about who he is. And that's a great theme in the Gospel of John, that these miracles of Jesus were not just spiritual fireworks to create oohs and ahs among the crowd, but to authenticate, to be signs pointing to his identity as the Messiah and as the Son of God. And that's what Jesus is going to try, and we'll see this more next week, to get this crowd to understand what these miracles really mean. Yes, they are an act of compassion and love, and we should follow Jesus' example in doing these sorts of things. Feeding the hungry and reaching out to the poor and the lonely. But these miracles that Jesus performed authenticated his message about who he was. And the crowd kind of understood it. They took this miracle to be a sign that Jesus was a prophet. Look at verse 14. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then they wanted to take him by force and make him king. They wanted him to become the deliverer that they were looking for. First century Jews believed that at the end of time, God was going to send a prophet to lead the people. And they got that from Moses' own teaching. Moses says in Deuteronomy 8.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And this prophet is the one you should listen to. And so the Jews remembered that prophecy. They remembered those words of Moses. And they looked for one like Moses to lead them at the end of time and to deliver them. And this miracle of Jesus reminded them, of course, of the ministry of Moses. It's under Moses' leadership and under Moses' ministry that God fed the people of Israel manna from heaven. And so they recognized Jesus as a prophet. It reminded them of Elijah. Remember Elijah's miracle with the widow of Zarephath during a drought? This is in 1 Kings 17. Her jar uh, of, of flour was empty. Her jar of oil was empty, but then Elijah came and it began to fill. She had plenty of resources. They saw this miracle. It reminded them of Moses. It reminded them of Elijah. It reminded them of Elijah's disciple, Elisha. And we read about that today in 2 Kings 4, verses 42 through 44. Elijah fed a hundred men with 20 loaves of barley and grain. So all this is echoing. All this, they're remembering all this. This is the prophet. This is one like Moses, Elijah, Elijah. He's got great power. He's doing things on a scale that even they didn't do. Maybe he can deliver us from the hands of the Romans. Some people, by the way, will try to just evade these miracles. Have you heard some explanations? You know, some ways to kind of explain miracles like this away, particularly the natural the miracles that, that, that are over nature. We see so often in in the scriptures like this feeding the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on water. One of, the, one of the ways that people try to rationalize this miracle, the feeding the 5,000 ways, they say, well, Jesus had a secret stash of food. It was all prearranged. And he whispers to Philip, no, go get the bread and the, and the fish. It's hiding in the cave over there. That's, that's actually a one explanation. Some people put, the, the more common explanation, and, and maybe a little bit more reasonable, but still it's an evasion of what we see in the text, is that this was a miracle of love and fellowship and sharing. You know, Jesus told his disciples, you take out what little you have and you share with one another, and then the crowd will start doing that, and then we'll have this multiplication of food. Well, that's not what's happening here. And that really is not that impressive, is it? 
This miracle is recorded in four Gospels. It's the only other miracle recorded in all four Gospels except for the resurrection. And the reason why it was recorded in all four Gospels is these disciples and the people were blown away at the scale of this miracle. This was a biggie. And it impressed them and it impressed the crowd. And the problem that people have with miracles like this is that they make the assumption that Miracles are scientifically impossible. Assumption one. Assumption two. Science is the only way to know things for certain. Okay? Science is the only realm of knowledge. Everything else is in the realm of feelings. So we make a split. Science, math over here. Religion goes with feelings. It's all subjective. One scholar said that that's like saying that baseball is the only game you can play on this field. Therefore, football doesn't exist. No, science has its rules. It's a, a field of knowledge. It has its own rules and procedures. It is certainly a, it is a gift from God. It's a valid way of knowing, but it's not the only way to know. And what we see in these nature miracles is Jesus declaring himself to be the Lord over nature, to be the sovereign king, the creator. He is a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He is a king, but he's also the Lord of the universe, and he's not the kind of king that they were looking for. He is a king who will lay down his life for the salvation of the world. And one thing I want to get across here is we as Christians have reasons to believe in Jesus. It's not just purely subjective. It's not just a matter of feelings or our opinions. These miracles of Jesus are recorded in the gospel as astounding signs that Jesus did so that we would have reason to believe that he is the very son of God and the Messiah. These things have been written so that you might believe and by believing have what? Life in his name. Life in him. That's what John says. And this is a big theme in the gospel of John. That the miracles testify and authenticate that Jesus is from God. So, John chapter 5. Jesus is in, once again, controversy with the religious leaders of his day. And he says this in John 5, 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. These miracles bear witness. And then John 3, remember Nicodemus, the Pharisee, coming to Jesus. And he says this in John 3, 2. He comes to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you're doing unless he's from God. And the point I'm trying to make is we have good reasons to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be in the Gospels. Should build our faith. And we're all accountable to God. Listen, we're all accountable to God to respond to the signs, the revelation of who Jesus is. We're responsible before God to believe and to continue to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. When we know Christ as the great provider, when we know him as the Son of God, the Lord of creation, then we can have peace. Peace in the storm. And we see that at the end of our section this morning. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. 
The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. They had rowed uh, about three or four miles. Okay, then they see Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. That's clear in the other Gospels. And it's clear here. They didn't really know it was Jesus. They saw him. They thought it was an apparition. They thought he was a ghost. He's walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Now, something else happened to me on vacation that helps me to relate a little bit to this story. You guys should send me away more. We were out on a boat, a pontoon boat, uh, on a lake, the Swan Lake in the Flathead Valley. Beautiful area of the country. But we got out there on the boat. Our family's out there, um, and my brother-in-law's and my father-in-law. We had a lot of people on this pontoon boat. I don't know how many. It was maybe over a dozen. But we finally got to the spot we were going to, to fish. And I was going after these elusive pike. They kept telling me, you're going to catch a big pike out there. No, I, it never happened for me, unfortunately. <laughs> but that's what we were going for. And the sto- a storm came in. It came through the valley. And the waves began to pick up. And I had never, I'm not a boat person. I'd never experienced anything. We started to rock a little bit. The waves lapping up over the boat. The rain came. People started getting nervous. Grace was outside of the boat. She was on a raft floating out there. And for some reason, this is the teenage brain. There is something about the teenage brain, right? Scientifically, we know this now. She took off the life jacket. She thought she would swim better without it. So she throws off the life jacket and dives into the water as the waves are cresting over her head. And she's bobbing out there. And she couldn't get back into the boat without my help. So I had to go to the back of the boat and pull her out. And I tell her, and I reminded her several times on this trip, I saved your life, honey. (laughs) You owe me. You got to have some leverage with teenagers. So that's that's the thing now. I saved your life. But anyway, um, and then the scary thing was it got a little more harrowing because the the rope that was attached from the, the boat to the raft was caught up in the motor. And so we wondered if the motor was even going to start. And so we had to cut the rope off and everything was fine. But it was a scary time. As I was, we were puttering back to the beach, I thought, you know, I can kind of relate now to the disciples. Maybe I'll have an occasion to preach on this. Well, here we are. But um, they were afraid. And when you're in the boat and you're vulnerable to the wind and the waves, you're afraid. But when the Lord of the wind and the waves is walking alongside of you and says, I'm here, it's me, says they were glad to take him into the boat. Another translation, they were willing. Because I think beforehand they weren't willing. They didn't know who he was. They were freaked out. But when they heard his voice, it is I, do not be afraid. They took him on board. What in your life are you afraid of? What is keeping you up at night? Listen to Christ. Go to Him and hear Him say, It's me. I'm with you. Uh, Somebody uh, wrote these words, In the presence of Jesus, the longest journey is short and the hardest battle is easier. It's not that the journey goes away or the battle goes away, but to know that He's with you, the Lord of creation, the great provider, will give you great peace. Let's pray.